I was listening to a, a podcast this week, and uh, it was really good timing because the person they had on was um, Dr. Henry Cloud. Does anybody know that name, Dr. Henry Cloud? He's a very big, like, um, he kind of started in Christian counseling, Christian psychology, and then he and his friend, John Townsend, have written a whole bunch of books. One of them is Boundaries. You heard of that book, Boundaries, um, and a whole other ones. But one of, his most recent one is called Trust, and writing about, like, how do you get trust um, how does it get broken? How do you trust the right people? How do you get it back um, if you've lost it with someone? And he talked about the five key elements of trust. And they were understanding, motive, ability, character, and track record. And so you get trust from somebody, uh, or somebody will trust you when you understand them, um, when they know that your motives for them are good, uh, when they have the ability to do the thing that you would be trusting them to do, uh, when they have the character that this isn't somebody who's like, well, maybe they have the ability, but they're just trying to get me, you know, to sign the contract or get me to do this thing, but their character isn't good, and so they're not really going to do what I've, I'm trusting them to do. And then track record, what has it been like uh, in the past? Have they shown that they can be trustworthy in this area or in general? And so I want to tell you about something that I uh, have a lot of trouble trusting, which is roller coasters. And I'm, I'm tall. I love roller coasters, but I'm tall... And so you'll notice my arms go pretty high, and whenever roller coasters like go in a black tunnel, I'm like really afraid that if I put my hands up, I'm gonna like get it caught in some rafter and it's gonna rip my arm out of its socket. <laughs> this is like my fear on roller coasters when it goes through a tunnel. But I always like reassure myself when I'm going through it that it's like, okay, can I can I trust that my arm's not gonna be ripped off in this? So let me go through the five things of trust. One is. Uh, okay, these people, they understand the problem that a tall person would get their arm ripped off if there's some sort of beam uh, when they have their arms up. So, okay, they understand the problem. Uh, second, they're motivated to keep me safe because if they don't keep me safe, like, I know people are going to come back. Like, people get their arms ripped off on that roller coaster, don't ride it, right? Uh, third, ability. Like, uh, they, they must have the ability to build a safe roller coaster, go through, you know, the things they need to do that they couldn't have just thrown this thing together and allowed people in there. Uh, fourth would be their character. Uh, there must be safety ins inspections. You know, in some ways, maybe their motive for making it safe is for the money, but also they don't want to see people hurt. And so there's got to be safety inspections. People are checking this out. Uh, and fifthly, surely there's a track record. This is the usual way I tell myself that other tall people like me have gone through this tunnel <laughs> and their arms weren't ripped off. And so there's a track record of this tunnel being safe for tall people. And this will we'll, we'll get into trust. Uh, in what we're in, doing in this passage. But this series, Redeemed for God, eight weeks through the book of Exodus, and the title says it all. We're getting close to where uh, we're hearing that God is going to redeem them, to take them out of slavery, and he wants to bring them to himself. It's not just redeemed, but it's redeemed for God, that God is freeing them from something uh, for himself. And this book is the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And these events happened, you know, 3,000-ish years ago, 1200, 1500 B.C. And it's a story about freedom for Israel, but tells us freedom that we all are looking for. And so, so far we've seen God sees these people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. They've lived there for 400 years, and they become enslaved. And God sees the problem, he understands it, and he knows what's going on. And he says, I'm going to act. And then he uses this guy named Moses, who is a, a man of Israel, but who grew up in the Egyptian palace. But he uses Moses... To now bring the people out. He sends ten plagues saying, let my people go to Pharaoh. And Moses is the one who communicates it, like, look, let them go, or this is what's going to happen. And God works through Moses. And then we saw last week how they were 
uh, at the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds that is sometimes translated. They're at this sea and they're backed up. There's the sea and the army of Pharaoh coming. He finally let them go. And then Pharaoh decides, what are we doing? Why do we let our slave labor go? Let's go after them. And so the people are stuck between the sea and Pharaoh's army. And then God leads them through the sea uh, to safety. And so God has been freeing them, leading them, protecting them. And this week, Israel is in the wilderness. And this is a big theme in scripture of people going into the wilderness um, for a time of testing. And so they've crossed through the sea, and now they're in this wilderness uh, on their way up to the promised land. That God said, I'm going to give you the land of Israel, or the land of Canaan at that time, but I'm going to give you this land. Uh, he told his promise to their ancestors, I'm going to give you this land. So God's brought them out of slavery, leading them north towards the land of Canaan to give it to them. But what happens in the wilderness is Israel's trust gets tested. And the question isn't not, you know, them saying to God, can I trust you? But it's God saying, will you trust me? Like as you're in these situations, as you're put in these situations where you need to trust me, will you trust me? And this generation of Israel is uh, infamous. It's often called the wilderness generation. They're all throughout scripture. The Psalm I read at the beginning, Psalm 95, if we kept going, it would have talked about, don't be like them. Don't be like those people that tested God. So instead of it being God's testing them, uh, will you trust me? It's them saying, well, God, we don't know if we can trust you. And they, get, uh, they test God. They put God to the test. And they're an example of what not to do. And we're told, you know, don't put God to the test. Don't do this. Don't harden your hearts. But when you hear his voice, when you see his words, don't harden your hearts, but trust him. Listen to your voice. And they're known as, known as grumblers and complainers. And Psalm 106 describes them as un, ungrateful, forgetful, and untrusting. And so they're all throughout Scripture. I don't have time to you know, name all the passages you find references to them in. But as we go through this, we can ask ourselves, what situations in my life am I showing a lack of trust in God? What situations in your life are you showing a lack of trust in God? And as we look at them, you can maybe look at it as like diagnosing uh, untrust and look for what are the symptoms of untrust that these people show and ask, do I have those symptoms going on in my life? Do I have this thing of untrust in God in certain areas? And so we're going to go through these several uh, little stories of what happens. And, uh, of course, there's way more that happens during this time period when they're, we're, when they're in the wilderness. But these are written down so that me, we might learn uh, from them, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. And so there's this general theme. So the first is chapter 15, verses 22 through 27. And there's going to be this general theme. There's a problem, and there's com a complaint, and there's God's solution, and then there's God bringing up how he tests them. So uh, first ch chapter 15, verses 22 through 27 the first issue is it's three days after going through the sea, and they have no water. And they see a place where there is water, but they go to check out the water, and it's bitter. It doesn't taste good. And this was common for, like, water holes in the desert. They might get filled with minerals or salt, and then you go and try it, and it's like, oh, this is bitter. And, and so the complaint they give is they grumbled against Moses. They say, what shall we drink? Like, can, can anybody get something to drink for me around here? And then the solution is Moses cried to the Lord, and God instructed him, there's this log over here, and I want you to take the log and throw it in the water. And there's some people that talk about that there's actual like bushes that people who live in the desert know that if you take you know, chunks of that bush and throw it in water, it kind of like um, takes some of the yucky minerals out, whether that was happening or God was just like, I want you to throw that in there and I'm going to do something with it. You know, what, however it happened, it happened. 
and the water becomes drinkable. And God says, basically says, I'm giving this test. Will you listen? Will you listen to me? Let me read what God says to them in it's 15 uh, verse uh, 25, about halfway through. It says, There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I'll put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And so God is making this invitation. Listen, the way of life I'm giving you, my commands, my statutes, my laws, is so that you don't fall under the same judgment as the Egyptians because they had hard hearts. They wouldn't listen to me. And he's saying, look, this is, that, that can happen to you too, but I don't want it to happen to you. I want you to follow me and listen to me and, and do what I say and not ignore my voice. And he talks about them, uh, to them like, I'm your healer. Like, I want to, you know, in a way, heal humanity, and I want to show you the way to be human, the way to relate with me, the way to be, uh, have me be your God. And I always, you know, whenever you see commands in the Bible, God's commands are always a reflection of God's character. And so you can see it here. Like, I want you to do this. I am your healer. Like, why am I telling you to follow this? You know, like almost like a doctor saying, do this and you're going to get healthy. And that's the goal is that he wants to see them healed and to have life. And I, you know, often when Hudson and I get in parking lots, it hasn't happened too much lately, but he used to like, you know, we'd get out in the parking lot and he would just start to take off running. And we've told him, you know, so many times, like, buddy, you cannot run away in parking lots. There are cars do you want to get run over? No. Well, don't, then don't run in the parking lot. Like, stay next to us. Like, we are telling you this because this is serious. Like, and there's been, you know, maybe one, he didn't get super close to getting hit, but like, he kind of ran off and there was a car that stopped and all of a sudden I had to show him, like, buddy, there's a car right here that was coming. Like, this is why mommy and daddy say, stay close to us. Don't run. I know it's more fun to run, but look, we want to keep you safe and I'm doing it for your good. And so it's like God is saying, look, what I'm telling you is for your good, to keep you safe, to have you live in the way that I made you to live. And then we're told at the end of that verse, verse 27, um, chapter 15, verse 27, they go camp out at Elam, where there are 12 springs of water. It seems like kind of an oasis. But then we're introduced six weeks later, and we get the, the time elements there in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 16. About six weeks later, uh, they're heading toward Sinai, which they're heading toward Mount Sinai, this is where God said, he's been saying this whole time, I'm going to bring you out and I'm going to meet with you at this mountain. That's the mountain that God uh, has set. And they're heading towards that. And the problem is they don't have any food. And so the complaint you hear again is they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And this whole story takes up all of chapter 16. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. At least there we had meat and bread. Now we're out here to starve to death. And I always like the phrase, I don't know why it's called a meat pot. In Egypt, we sat around the meat pots. I'd like a meat pot. I don't know <laughs> what that is, a bucket of chicken from KFC or something. But, uh, but he's like, we're starving here. We don't have bread. We don't have uh, meat. And so the solution is that God says, I'm going to give you meat in the evening. You're going to have quail. Eventually, as we find out, they have this quail that lands amongst them. And then they have bread in the morning. And they go out, and there's like this fine, flake-like stuff, kind of like frost on the ground. And actually, they say, what is it? And that's where the word, we call it manna. That's like literally the Hebrew word, what is it? That's what they name it because they're like, where did this come from? Well, what's interesting is both those things are, are natural, similar to the, the water and the log. 
they can be natural things where quail, when they would be migrating, coming over the, flying between Europe and Africa, going over the Mediterranean Sea, this area is where often they would hunker down for a rest. And also the, the thing with manna is, you know, there's you know, a little more debate about this, about uh, the one thing is that it's a secretion, try to ignore that image, it's a secretion of small aphids feeding on tamarisk trees that hardens and then falls, and people would use it as a sweetener in like desert areas. Or it could possibly be the sweet liquid of a, a hamada plant used to sweeten cakes. But so these two, both these things can happen naturally. But the amount and the timing of it, of like God is providing it day by day, and the amount by which he's providing it, you see that whether it's natural or not, God is doing something um, through nature to care for his people. And then we're told about the test. God says in 16, chapter 16, verses 4 to 5, we'll read what he says there. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And so what they're told, the instructions they're given, you know, law the, also is the same, you could translate it as instruction. He says, I don't want you to gather any extra. Each day you go out, you get this stuff off the ground, this manna stuff, and you gather what you need for that day. Because if you try to store it, you're going to wake up the next day and it's going to be rotten, and it's going to have worms in it. And what do the people do? They go out and gather extra, so they have two days' worth, and they wake up in the morning, and it's rotten and stinky and has worms in it. And Moses says to him, how long will you not listen to me? And he also tells them, I want you to gather uh, for six days of the week, and on the sixth day you're actually going to gather double. None of the other days can you gather double. On the sixth day you're going to gather for the seventh day, because the seventh day is a Sabbath. You're not going to work, you're not going to go out, and you're not going to gather food that day. So on the sixth day you gather double, and the double portion then you use on the seventh day, what happens? The seventh day comes, the people go out to try and gather, and they're like, where is it? There is none of it. And so you see, it's, you know, there, it, this could occur naturally, but God is really timing things up of like, well, six days it's there, on the seventh day it's not, on the sixth day uh, it won't rot if you gather double. You know? So see, God is caring for them in this way. And Moses says again, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? And the Sabbath, we'll get a little more into that uh, next week in the Ten Commandments, but the Sabbath day, uh, one of the reasons God gives why it's given is you're going to have a day of rest because you are no longer slaves in Egypt. You don't have to work every single day as slaves. You have me providing for you now. Now I'm your king, not Pharaoh, and I'm setting how you live your life. And the seventh day, you don't go out and work. And in verses six, chapter 16, verses 6 through 8, it says, So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he's heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And then what happens is we're told in later verses that then they see the glory of the Lord coming in the evening, which is a way to make it show, like, look, guys, it's not, you're not grumbling against me, Moses. Like, this is who you're grumbling against, this God who has brought you out of Egypt. And he wants to make that clear. And at the end of the chapter 16, they are told, I want you to take some of this manna, some of the bread stuff on the ground, I want you to store it up and, like, keep it in a jar for all your future generations. And later when they build, uh, they have this, you know, kind of chest that they put some of their... Um, sacred things in to remember who God is and what he's done for them. One of the things they put in there is this jar of manna to remember 
future generations can look at this and see this is how God, the verse, it literally says how God fed you while you're in the wilderness. And so we move on to chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, a water problem. They move to Rephidim, and they find no water. And then the complaint is they quarreled with Moses. Give us water to drink. And then Moses says again, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And they were told they grumbled against Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so the solution, Moses cried to the Lord, and he says, take your staff, I'll stand before you on the rock, and you strike it, and water shall come out. And so Moses goes and stands by this rock, God's presence there, and he strikes it, and water comes out. You know, perhaps God placed that spring there, you know, one, you know, thousands, thousands, however long before, and knowing my people are going to be here at one point, and they strike this rock, and water is going to come out. And we're told how they tested him. They call the place Massa, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Massa is a word... Hebrew word for testing, and they called it Meribah because of the quarreling. So they're like, they're quarreling with Moses, quarreling with God, and they're testing God by saying, are you really with us or not, God? And there's a battle they experience in chapter 17, starting in verse 8 to verse 16, and they meet this army, the Amalekites, and they come against them, and they fight against fight with them, and the way that they continue having victory is only when Moses is like holding his staff uh, in a certain way, like above his head or holding it out. And you saw that God worked through Moses um, during the plagues, like stretch out your staff, stretch out your hand, and it was like this physical thing that God did to show, I'm working through this guy Moses. And the battle may seem like, well, I don't know, God, are God's people really supposed to fight other people? When you, if you've gone all the way back into Israel's history, Genesis chapter 12, when God says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to bless you so you'll be a blessing to the world. But those who curse you, I will curse. And so you have this army coming against God's people. And God says, if you're going to stand against my people, like I'm going to fight for them. What's interesting is it keeps focusing. It doesn't even describe the battle, like how it's going on. Like, oh, yeah, and then Moses, and then they went around this way, and then they flanked them, and blah, blah, blah. All it keeps focusing on is the hill. It's like, imagine I'm on the hill, and the battle's going down there, and the camera's just, you know, on me, and you hear the battle behind you, but it's focusing on what happens on the hill, and it's Moses holding his staff up, having two other friends helping him hold it up, showing that God still is fighting for them, and that God is delivering through Moses. And the final problem we encounter in chapter 18, it's not a food or water problem, or like an army battle problem, but it's a teaching problem. And we find out that Moses had sent his wife. So Moses, we learned back in like chapter 3, he kills an Egyptian defending a Hebrew. And then he runs off into the wilderness and he meets um, the, a couple of shepherdesses there. He helps them water their flock and then he ends up marrying one of them and he has children with her. And so he had sent his wife and kids back to his father-in-law Jethro while all this stuff was going on. And then we read in verse uh, chapter 18, verse 1, Jethro, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And so he's coming to visit Moses and the people. I've heard everything God did, heard everything he did against Egypt. And now he's coming out uh, where Israel is in camp. They've made it to Mount Sinai, we're told, and they're by the mountain of God. And Jethro <coughs> is coming out to visit. In verses 7 through 9 we read, And Moses went out to greet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. 
And then Moses told his father-in-law, now notice how many times the word all is used, that Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that they had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And so it's basically like this little praise party of like uh, Jethro comes, he's heard what's happening. Moses tells all the story from firsthand account and then he just ends up rejoicing. And in verses 10 through 12, this is Jethro's response. Uh, Blessed be the Lord who's delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so Jethro, he decides, this is the one true God, and I'm going to worship him. I'm going to do this sacrifice for him. But it's interesting how it comes about. He turns to God because of what God had done for somebody else, because of what God had done for Israel and for Moses. So, and so he just hears this story, and then he rejoices and turns to God. And really, you could call this Israel's testimony. They're witnessing to, they're testifying to, this is what God has done for us. And that's actually one of the most powerful and natural ways for you to invite somebody to trust in God, is your stories of how you've seen God come through for you. And notice Moses, not just like that big thing with the Exodus, like, yes, he saved us, but then also the hardship we met along the way as we're going with the water and the food, like these you know physical, ordinary, everyday provisions of like, in our hardships, those stories of how God came through for us are a great way to invite others to trust in Him too. And then what happens is Jethro's hanging around and he's watching what Moses does. And Moses hangs out, I don't know if he's on a stool or something, and the people of Israel, they're coming to him with like these issues. Like, what are we supposed to do in this situation? What are we supposed to do about this? Hey, so-and-so did this to me. Can you tell us, you know, kind of arbitrate this? Like, what's going on here? And so Jethro watches Moses sit there all day as all these people are coming to him, asking them, what do we do about this? And getting his instruction on it. And then Jethro takes him aside. I don't know if this is a good father-in-law thing to do or not, but uh, he's like, what are you doing? And then Moses' explanation is like, well, I mean, the people come to me for all the answers about what they need to do in their life. And he's like, no, no, no. This is not good. You're going to wear yourselves out, and you can't do this alone. And so he tells them, you need other people. You need community. Yes, Moses, you are God's man who was chosen for this thing, but you can't do this all alone. You need other people around you. And then his advice he gives them is, I want, you're going to handle the big stuff, but then you're going to appoint other people over like groups of hundreds and thousands and tens and whatnot. And so it's going to kind of be this like chain of like, you handle the really big things. You're, I don't know if you want to call them the Supreme Court or something. But then there's all these like lower courts where it's like, uh, entrust other people to be able to tell people what they're supposed to do about listening to God in their life as well. Because that's the whole thing here. That all everything connected in here has been like, are we going to listen to God? And they're all coming to Moses to hear what God has to say. Then he's saying, no, you need more people telling the people what God has to say. And so it's getting the word of God into their ordinary everyday lives and it's cool to see it's getting the word of God to the people of God through the people of God and so that's why churches aren't supposed to just be I'm the pastor and everyone comes to me but it's still the same thing of like we get through the people of God God gets his word to his people and that's why we do things like gospel communities or the two bible studies that are happening uh, during the week right now 
So as we consider how to make this personal, I just want you to think of, even, and even take a moment to write down or put in your phone or just have in your mind, what are situations in your life where you're showing a lack of trust? You see what they did. They grumble. They complain. Uh, they come to Moses. They don't even go to God. They come to Moses. And they are asking, is God really with us? Is he really among us or not? Like, does God care about us? And I just want you to take a moment to write down um, areas where you're worried or stressed or anxious. And maybe even where you're writing what ifs. Well, God, what if this happens? Or what if this doesn't happen? Or what if everything goes wrong? I just want you to take a moment. I'm going to give you a minute of silence to write down and think about what are you worried, stressed, and anxious about? those things when we're worried, stressed, when we're anxious, can tell us an area where we're seeing a lack of trust in God. And for these people of Israel, it's crazy that they saw all that God did, and were even told that they believed and they worshipped. That's That was their response to it. But then now as they keep going, their first reaction to a problem is to grumble, to complain, uh, to worry, to freak out, to question, to doubt God's love, to ask, God, do you even care? Where are you? Like, we, we saw you do this thing, and they worship God, but now they hit a problem, and it's like, can we really trust him? Like, where is he at? Why isn't he with us doing this for us? And perhaps you can relate that it's like, you might feel like one week, man, my trust in God is solid. And then all of a sudden, something comes up, and you're freaking out, and then you maybe realize a couple days later, like, wait, I, I'm... <laughs> I, I was trusting God one day, and now I'm not. And we just kind of can, sometimes our initial reaction to a problem we encounter in life is that we get worried and anxious, and we kind of freak out, and we complain, like, where are you now, God? And we ha- they had all these reasons to trust God. At the beginning, we talked about how Henry Cloud wrote that book called Trust, and he had five key elements of what makes up trust. And I kind of put each of these as a question. Um, so first, it's understanding And it was kind of helpful for me to look at these. So, um, does God understand us? So the question is, uh, these all are two words, not complete sentences. So it's like, does he get me, get me, question mark. Does God get us? Does he get what it's like to be me? Like, God, do you get me? Do you get what's going on for me? So there's understanding. We even saw earlier in the book that God saw and he heard what was going on and he knew. And so God understands them and he understands us. He gets us. Jesus even took on human flesh to even more experience firsthand what it is like to be us. So does God get me? Yes, he does. <coughs> Motive, is God for me? So it's, does God get me? 
is God for me? And we see, we've already seen, he said, the Lord is going to fight for you. I've brought you out of Egypt. I've come through so many times, and I'm for you. I'm not against you. He's motivated by that, by his grace and his love that he's for us. Thirdly, does uh, ability, can he? Well, maybe he gets me, and maybe he's for me, but can he, can he come through in this area? And they're encountering new situations. Like, well, can God actually get us food in the wilderness? Sure, we saw how he could beat up on the Egyptians and take us through the sea, but can he do this? So his ability, can he? And his character is, will he? Yeah, he gets me, he's for me, and he can, but will he? Does he want to? Is that something he wants to do? And that one can be kind of tricky because we might think like, here's what I'm anxious about, here's what I want you to do, God. And I answer the question, will he? Yes, he will do that. Well, no, what we need to trust God is that he will do what is best for us. He will do what is for our good. And actually, in those testing situations, God doesn't always remove us out of hardship, but he wants us in those moments, like we saw a couple weeks ago, that he wants to get glory over that thing that we are fearing more than him. And so he might leave us in that, letting us trust. But will he? Is he good? He's always going to work out for our good. Fifth, his track record. Has he? Has he come through for me in the past? Like, okay, he gets me. uh, He's for me. uh, He can. He will. And also, he has. That we've seen him in the past. That he's come through for us in other situations. And Israel could have looked back too and said, well, he has been coming through for us. Surely he didn't lead us out of Egypt just so we could die here. Uh, He wants us to worship him and be his people. And so for them, they had the exodus. And we have the cross, that we look back at this salvation event, and how do we know that God, He gets us, He's for us, and what He's done for us, that He loves us, that He can, He has done what we need. God, it's encouraging that God responds to their grumbling, that very graciously. He doesn't, as they keep grumbling in the future, we're going to learn this generation doesn't actually get to enter the promised land, because their hearts were so hardened to trusting God, that he says, you guys have forfeited this. This was a privilege, and you forfeited that, having that. Uh, but he, these responses, he responds very graciously. We're told they grumbled and complained against God, and then God says, okay, I'll give you meat to eat. <laughs> I'll give you uh, manna to eat. Like, I'll provide for you. So he responds to them very graciously. But they didn't finish. They don't endure. And why? We're told, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, because they didn't trust. Then we're told in those chapters, like, Look, they saw all of this stuff happen. They saw the Exodus. They saw the Red Sea. And then they saw God providing quail and manna and water from a rock. But yet, they still would not trust God. And we're told in those chapters in Hebrews 3 that we can hear the gospel. We can hear the good news about what Jesus did. We can see miracles. We can hear about miracles. And yet, we cannot finish the race. That it's not so much about if you started, but it's about whether you finished. And all throughout the Bible... The importance isn't put on if we trusted God back then, but it's are we trusting God now? Not, well, I trusted God 20 years ago when I was baptized, and so now I'm good. No, it's always in this generation, generation as an example of, like, look what they experienced. They believed, they worshipped, and yet they fell off. They let their hearts be hardened um, by sin and unbelief. And so the question is, today are we listening? Today are we trusting and Jesus warned people, you know, the parable of the four soils, where he said, I'm sowing this seed, and the one soil it lands on is just super hard, kind of like Pharaoh, super hard heart, doesn't penetrate at all. But then there's these other seeds that do land on some ground, and they start taking root, but in the one, there's these 
thorns and thistles and they grow up and they choke the word. And so the person begins with joy. Yes, I want this. I want you, God. But then the cares of life were told. The cares of life, the cares of the world. Like, what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? What about my money? What about my retirement? All those things come on and they start choking out the word. And so Jesus warns, look, it's not about starting with a little spurt, but you've got to keep going. You can't let those things choke out the word in your life. And he also says suffering, the same thing. It's almost like a seed gets planted, it takes a little bit of root, and it starts coming up, but because it doesn't have deep roots, then the sun kind of burns it away. And so in suffering, he says, some people start out joyfully, but then they fall away because suffering comes into their life. And he says, you need to endure. You go in the wilderness. You're on this journey. It's between the exodus and the promised land. It's between uh, the cross and Jesus' second coming that he says, you need to endure, that you need to hold on you need to keep trusting, and that's how you finish. And so you see, there's like the big event of the Exodus, but then there's the ordinary walking with God, trusting Him for our food and for our provision. And so I might ask, well, how does God grow our trust? Well, He puts us in situations where we need to trust. <laughs> it's like being a workout, you know, going and working out. You put your muscles in situations where they need to be used. And so God puts us in situations where our trust in Him needs to be used. And you, we might see, like, well, I see this area you're weak, and so we're really going to work on that right now. I'm going to give you some exercises uh, in that area. And he does it for our good. And so we can, when we go through things that are kind of hard, we can, instead of wondering if God is going to come through for us, we can be expectant and be like, I wonder how God's going to come through for me in this. Instead of, are you going to come through me? Be, I'm just going to wait for how you're going to come through for me. I'm going to trust you in it. And Jesus invites us to learn to trust like him. If I was to sum up, you know, the, he has these things about look at the birds and look at the flowers. They're not worrying. They're not storing up about tomorrow. God cares for them, and you're more valuable than him. Seek first his kingdom, and he's going to give these things to you. He's going to care for you. And Jesus was also tested. He went out into the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, and then he has the devil, Satan, that serpent from Genesis 3, come to him and say, Hey, look, you're hungry, right? Why don't you turn these stones to bread? That might sound familiar. We want bread. What are we going to eat? And Jesus says, no, no. And he actually refers back to this story. We don't live on bread alone, but we live on what God says. From And it's not that the food is, not that his words are our food, but it's like, no, God said he's going to provide for me. He's going to provide for me tomorrow. And I don't need to store up bread today. That You need to trust that God would do what he said. If I was to sum up just, What's been helpful to me of like Jesus' kind of view on life and how he trusts God. It seems he just walks through all situations believing, God's got this. God's got me. It may not turn out how I want it or how I planned or what I've asked for, but God's got this and God's got me. And so I don't need to freak out. <coughs> a couple weeks ago, um, Katie asked me a question. We've been in Woodstock for eight years. Uh, so if you're thinking I'm young now, uh, imagine me uh, eight years ago, I was like 28. Uh, I don't know who, th- somebody thought it was a good idea to put me in charge of starting a church. Uh, so that feels very gracious. Um, but we've experienced test upon test, things not going as expected, things not going as is planned, things that we want, if we do this, X will happen, but it not working out that way. And us just wondering, is any of this going to work out? Is our church going to make it? And having challenges and pe- pain and stress and fear and Katie asked me a couple weeks ago, if I knew that this was how it was going to go, would I still have done it? And I thought, I never thought of this before, but as I, my answer, I said, um, if this were the only way, 
to know God like I know Him now, then yes, I would go through all of it again. Because all the things were hard and challenging and difficult. Uh, they brought me to a greater place of trust in God. And so that list that you wrote earlier, or you have in your head, uh, if you wrote it down, I just want you to maybe put a box around it or something of things you're stressed, worried, anxious about. And you can just write over the top of that, God's got this, and God's got me. In all that stuff you're stressed, anxious, worried about, that you're like, or frustrated about, it's like, God's got this. God's got me. I don't have to freak out. And we have something better um, than the Israelites had in the wilderness, because we have Jesus in the wilderness. That Jesus actually uses this story about bread, and he says, I'm the bread of life come down from heaven. And then Jesus, this story of the water, he says, anybody who thirsts, I'm the living water, come to me. And so we have Jesus in the wilderness. He gets us. He's walked through it. He's for us. Uh, he can get us through us. Uh, he will get it. And he, he has gotten people through it before. And he's come through for us as well. And so we feed on Jesus. We trust him as the one who is the word of God come in the flesh, showing us this is how you can live and trust. Follow me. I'll show you the way. Let's pray. God, it can be really hard sometimes when life just throws us a curveball, or worse, just uh, puts us on the bench and we're like, what is going on? Why is this happening to me? Where are you, God? Surely if you loved me and you're with me, this wouldn't have happened. God, would you help us in those moments to come to you with trust, that we would see our, we're going through a trust workout and you're trying to strengthen it in you. Would you draw our hearts in dependence and trust and hope in you in those moments? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.